0: Hello, Ria. It's so nice to speak with you today. How are you and, and where are you calling us from?
1: Hi, Spencer. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. I am currently in Seattle. I'm studying at the University of Washington, pursuing my master's in data science. But originally, I'm from Mumbai, India. So really missing home right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I remember when you first started calling us, you were on what a, a 12-hour time difference. So you were mm-hmm. having to take calls either really late or really early. How how is that for you?
1: Yeah, that was actually quite interesting, and I feel worse for you guys because you all tried so hard to accommodate our time zones. So it wasn't that bad for us, actually.
0: <laughs> we we tried our best. Uh, collective struggle made us stronger. That's that's for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> so, how did you hear about the Responsible Digital Leadership Project, and what made it what motivated you to join?
1: Yeah, sure. So, actually, around twenty twenty, I was working on a fellowship program in my state. Um, home state of maharashtra in india and in during that fellowship one of my seniors he told me that you know there's this project they're looking for people and they, you know he just told us what the project would roughly be about i am someone who was interested in data science and had some prior work experience in finance so i thought you know what this is interesting so i applied for it and after a few interviews i got a chance to be a part of this amazing team
0: So your background is in data science. What are you learning right now in your master's program at University of Washington? And how does it play a role in the work you did with the payments team?
1: Okay, So actually, my background, I finished my bachelor's in computer engineering. But after my bachelor's, I moved a bit towards the non-tech side, wherein I worked in investment banking. And then I worked with the rural department. And I worked with rural women to set up micro-entrepreneurship centers for them. And one of the main focus of that fellowship was promoting financial inclusion. So that is where this project also came in and the topics kind of overlapped. But the one thing that I realized throughout my work ex was the speed at which data science was being introduced in every single industry. And there was one point where tech was growing steadily, but even the government has a lot of use cases and I knew that data science can be you know, implemented to better the lives of the common citizens. And that is what promoted me or like, you know, pushed me to pursue a master's in data science right now, which is my subject of the master's, which is my master's subject right now.
0: So what what are some of the different ways that people can view data and and how can it be valued? You you mentioned that um, there's ways that it can help people. Um, What are some of those ways?
1: Right, so I can just tell you what I saw. Firstly, while working in finance is very clear, right? banks have a lot of data of their customers and they can use it to cross-sell customers' products, right? Like maybe tell you which loan scheme is better for you, that type of thing. But on the government side, especially when we work with rural women, you know, we have schemes, right? Every government, they have a lot of schemes for the people. And in countries like in India, where a population is more than 1 billion, it's very hard to get the benefits of that scheme to one person, right? So many times the people aren't aware of it; they don't know which scheme is better for them. So I just feel if we used a bit of data science, it would streamline this process and actually help people reap the benefits of things which are made for them. Because one interesting fact which you might know is that, which you might not know, is that at least in India, budgets are allocated for certain schemes, and at the end of the year, the budgets are recalled because all of it wasn't even spent. I mean, we clearly know people need the money. We know there's a scheme, but it's not reaching the people. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think the data science can come in and just improve the process a bit more.
0: So there's an issue in India of, uh, there's money that needs to be allocated, but there's not, there's not a way to figure out how to, or who to give the money to. Yeah, how the to
1: channels, it. yes. Mm-hmm. And it, it requires a lot more than data science, of course. It requires a lot of people working on hand, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, just, Joining the dots, that's where I think this can come in.
0: Yeah. So what type of data is collected to help in this process?
1: So, okay, now here's the other fun complicated part. Mm. This project actually motivated me to study a bit more about data ethics. Mm. And what Mm. I learned is that, you know, a lot of algorithms are based on data which is already available. And that data is based on the majority community, right? Right. But then there's this minority community and their data is not collected.
2: Mm.
1: Or think of it this way. If you are someone who's tasked with collecting data right, and you have low resources, there's a higher chance you will collect it by pen and paper and not in a digital, readable format. So eventually, when I'm a researcher, I have two options. Either pick out all of my Excel files or include the written documents. I will do what's simpler for me, right? I will go with what's already available. I will not put in the extra efforts and resources to translate those handwritten documents. And that's why key data is left out in this process. And that is something that needs to be collected. It's general census data, right? What's the average family income? What do the people do? What I realized from my experience is that if people had studied a bit more, they had more potential,
2: mm.
1: compared to the people who had studied less, but you know, they were earning a lot. Mm-hmm. So whenever we try to find out leaders in the community, we always try to find out people who were who driven, you know, who were eager to study, eager to learn more. And I think identifying those metrics is a bit difficult. Like I said, you know, you don't know who's the smart one or who studied more,
2: mm-hmm. because all
1: of those things aren't there on text right now. But the, the main difficulty in a country like India is that we do have census data. But Mm -hmm. enough data collection hasn't taken place, right? Whereas I look at US and US has all the data available, like for Medicaid, right? How much every state has, how much they are budgeting, how much people are getting, all of the data is readily available. Currently in India, we are still in the process of building larger and larger databases before we can use that database to draw any insights from it.
0: Mm. So, how do you see data ethics playing a role in the in the digital disruptions of finance?
1: So, this is actually um, it's a bit complicated because on one hand, banks, right? Let me say banks and not all financial institutions, but banks are very regulated, right? That's the good. That's the good part, right? They have to answer to a lot of governments around the world, but banks are, are also just trying to increase their revenue, right? And here's the like you said, the ethical dilemma that can come up where a bank has a customer, right? The duty of the bank is to provide the best service to the customer, mm-hmm. but they might also use the customer data to cross sell the other products of the bank, right? And here's the ethical dilemma that did the customer give you consent, you know, to receive marketing updates or did the customer not give that? That is a very thin line and you know, when you download an app, right? And there are these terms and conditions, you click agree because you want to use the app. But the common citizen doesn't really understand what's given in those terms and conditions, right? There's a lot of jargon. So this is where the ethical dilemma comes across, where they are like, we are telling you what we're doing, even if you don't understand it. Mm. So I think banks and financial institutions, which have been there around for centuries, they have a certain duty to educate their customers, right? Don't just make money off them. Let them know what are you doing. You know, like translate it to simpler terms. That's how I would put it. Then maybe the ethical dilemma wouldn't be an issue and maybe they can actually understand what you do with the data.
0: And aside from consent, do you also think that the data economy would make it harder for smaller fintechs to survive over over incumbent banks or vice versa? And also, do you think there's a danger in larger institutions monopolizing data?
1: Okay, to start with your first question was about smaller fintechs. Mm-hmm. So to in, in my limited experience, you know what I can say is that, firstly, as a smaller fintech, you have a lot more autonomy, right? Like I said, there are rules about banks which are already in existence, but the same rules aren't governing fintechs right now. So they can do a lot more with your data than a bank can do. So for example, PayPal is there, and in India, we have Paytm you know, what these fintechs do is that they have a larger reach. For example, a lot of growing economies, the reason why digital payments took off is because most of a population did not have access to a bank account. But they did have access to a cell phone. Mm -hmm. So they could adopt those fintech technologies and applications a lot faster, right? So these fintechs hold a power that the banks don't have currently. They do have a lot of customers, a lot of um, you know, you can say loyal customers. But there's not enough regulation. Recently, what had happened is that there were banks which were giving out micro loans, And of course, people need, you know, they need loans and stuff. But what happened in, in India, I can tell you, they found a very um, highly unethical way to get back the money. When someone did not pay them back what was required, these people started extorting them and harassing them. They tried to get the contacts of all of their families because that's the thing, right? When you sign up to install an application on your phone, you're also giving them access to the data on your phone. Mm. So those apps would draw out your contact list, wow. message all of your contact list saying this person hasn't, hasn't paid us back and publicly harass you. Wow! And thankfully, there were so many cases and there were more than two suicides surrounding this matter in India. And then the government realized, okay, this is a big issue. And that's when they banned like over 30 microloan apps from the App Store and from the Google Play Store. So this is the thing that, you know, these people are coming up with new, new things. And the government has to be smart enough to keep tackling it.
0: In our project, we've seen that there's countries that are much more lax about this types of type of regulation and also the population as well they a lot of populations in in countries will accept that because of the pace that the internet has come into our everyday normal lives we now kind of live in a surveillance state when we're on the internet everything we do can be tracked and, and can be sold but that's kind of accepted um do you think that the line should be drawn somewhere to prevent cases like the ones you the one you just mentioned, or do you think there's reasons for accepting that our our, our actions on the internet just will be surveilled and sold and monetized?
1: Um you're right. Firstly, like you said, there are countries like like European Parliament implement mm-hmm. the GDPR, right? Yeah, exactly. And they are obviously very ahead in yeah. terms of the research that they've conducted. Now, if you talk about emerging economies who are currently benefiting and more than benefiting who are also you know at the receiving end of the unethical part of the applications right i mean they will be preyed upon more my question is um so your question is a bit complicated in this case because like i said if i'm a person living in a rural area and i do not have access to a bank yeah the only thing is a digital wallet on my phone. Do I stop using the digital wallet? No, I don't think so, right? There's definitely a different kind of financial inclusion that those wallets provide, so not using them is not an option. But the government of a country has a certain duty, and I think they do have the capacity to draw a line.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We know, and we are very lucky that through this project of Stanford, you know we had people from Visa come and tell us. And through them, we learned that there are things like location, GPS, which Mm -hmm. is very important, you know, to determine whether the transaction was securely conducted by you. Things like that, your IP address, your location, your time. These are things which need to be collected, right? But then there are other things like access to camera and microphone and contacts, which is completely unnecessary. So the governments do have to draw a line and, you know, deem which information is essential, which is not. That is needed.
0: Yeah, and also it's, I mean, that's that's a complicated line to draw in the first place, but doable. But then if you look at, okay, location is necessary. Access to location services are necessary for, for banks in that one case. But then we had Chris Crespo on a couple of weeks ago. He gave a, a, a keynote speech to our project early on, and, and he gave an example about how, financial institutions by using your location services can see that you're at a house that might be um, up for sale and then your bank could then send you a notification saying, uh, based on your financial history, you can offer this much of a, of a loan on yeah. this house, which sounds helpful, but then if you think about what else your location services are being used for and, and, and what type of data that they're collecting based off of where you go, at what time, okay. They can form other predictions, um, like if you if you go if you're out a lot at night, um, hmm. or if you're in low-income areas, there could be predictions made that maybe you they they would they would be add points to the to a higher risk p- factor of giving you a loan, right. and that seems very very unfair. So you have to draw lines yeah. as well within what uh, these companies can do with the location data as well, and it just yeah. becomes very gray.
1: I think one way in which some of these apps are tackling it is that when you want to make a transaction, that is when they ask you to switch on your GPS.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? That makes more no right. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only when you need to send money, start it, otherwise switch it off. Mm-hmm. That's a solution to this issue, maybe.
0: Right. And and that comes into what you were saying earlier about consent. Um it, I think a lot of these institutions, they owe their their clients. Uh, they they need to properly inform them about what consent means and and when to use it yeah Um, and yeah if we're going to collect your your location they need to be informed that they have the right to turn it off at any point as well i don't always at least in my experience with with online banking i haven't seen that type of transparency but
1: so i know in india like a lot of people use google pay and Uh they have given that option okay so yeah i think it's a step in the right direction that if you're a big tech company if you start something Maybe the other ones will follow
0: suit. That brings up a point. Do you think a lot of the solutions to this lie in policy, or do you think the solutions can also be in in leading companies kind of setting setting the be, being good role models as well?
1: I think it's definitely a twofold approach because whether we say it or not, the big tech companies do have a lot of control over what people do, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And they should be the ones setting the trend. Yeah. I mean, if you know, you like like big tech companies can tell you what's happening in an election. There are statements that say that big tech companies can influence. No, can we just remove that part? I cannot say that. No. Yeah. Um, hold on. Can you just repeat that question once again? I'll just
0: um yeah. Uh, so so that brings up the point of um it, whether the solution. Uh, to uh, to to data collection and, and to violations of privacy and, and consent lies in policy or uh, does policy lag behind the private sector too much and the solutions should come directly from the private sector and, and, and um, executives acting responsibly and ethically?
1: Okay, yeah. So that is, I think, a twofold approach what I would definitely say is that the big tech companies have a lot of say in what goes on in this world, right? And what access to information we have. At the same time, there are countries which do not agree. Like, for example, I know India and China have different views on Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. And how much autonomy Facebook should be given, you know, in the country. Like, what content should be put up? For example, one thing is that if I put up something on Facebook, which is offensive, Who's liable, right? Should Facebook be held responsible? In that type of a scenario, it becomes a bit complicated about who's the role model, right? I can definitely say that the big tech companies influence a lot of other tech companies. So they should be setting the standard, right? They should be being the role models about what is the right thing to do, what's the ethical thing thing to do, thing to do. And governments on their own part have to analyze where the economy stands for example, I think GDPR can afford to be a bit more stringent. But say for a growing economy, the government would want these companies, right? We want our startups to progress more, to innovate more. And we cannot curb the activities completely. So I think the policies would differ from country to country, which is why it's essential that they're implemented. But on a global scale, the big tech companies do have a responsibility to play at this point, to be the role models right now.
0: Mm -hmm. and and you worked on the payments team um yeah do you what do you think of a lot of the uh dominating companies in the silicon valley kind of turning into fintech companies um with like google pay and facebook kind of has their own currency and, and and going on as well that's being developed um do you see a trend of of um companies kind of turning into fintech companies that weren't originally?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we can see that's happening all around us. You know, there's not a single company that's left out when we have Amazon Pay right now. Right. And they have clearly identified new avenues to increase the revenue. They know that this can definitely, you know, be a, I mean, for, for example, like you said, like, you know, like an Amazon, they already know our buying patterns. They know what we want. And it's very easy for them to include the payment methods, you know, that too, they give discounts, right? They say use Amazon Pay will give you 5% discounts and they can increase our reliance on their payment methods. But- um,
0: Why are ethics important to keep in mind during this form of disruption?
1: Okay. Um, yeah. So definitely I can say that, I mean, the general trend is that all of these big tech companies are moving into payment apps. And it's a bit worrisome because they already have access to all of our other data, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Google already knows when right. we wake up, when we sleep, when we're walking. Amazon knows what we're buying. Facebook knows who our friends are.
2: Mm. And
1: when they have access to all of our information together, it's a bit daunting. Mm. And one solution in, in payments team, what we realized is that it would benefit the consumers if these companies had a clear wall between the separate you know subdivisions say google pays separate from general google amazon pays separate and we know that our data does not interchange between their different subdivisions that would be really really important and i think i think one example was some startup or i think it was facebook which had come up come up with this idea where they would determine your credit score by analyzing the credit score of score of your friends. Mm-hmm. That is not something that you need. I mean right. that, that's complicated, it's unethical. So and, does yeah. it make okay. it
0: better to have to have that wall there? Like it, having Google sell uh its your personal information to another banking company and or, or Google Play being completely separate from Google. Yeah. Why why does that wall help so much?
1: Um, that world does help because, like I said, firstly, banks are regulated,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm-hmm. Tech companies, um, we see them going to court so many times. Yeah. And we even see the judges being confused because they don't know what's the right thing. Yeah. The pace at which technology is moving, right? Where do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. It is so complicated. It is so confusing, even for highly educated people. So... Yeah, it's just the people who are working on it, right? When you're working as a data science, you have to think about what are the implications. And this is something that I learned that data ethics, like we say, it's not just the duty of one body called GDPR, right? It's you as an engineer at every place. Like like I said, you know, if I'm a data engineer, I have to understand, are all the data sources, do they cover the entire population? Is it diverse? Mm-hmm. Is my data diverse before I can decide if my algorithm is diverse? Right. Mm-hmm. Right now we create a big line between who governs ethics and who studies tech. Mm. Because people who study tech, they think that you know their job is just to code, but they don't understand what they're doing, what they're coding is affecting affecting the entire world. So I think that is something that these tech companies do have to understand. And you know, like I think one solution from what I've read, like. I'm going to be more about this in this quarter. So, people are saying the only solution is to teach ethics to every single engineer and coder who works on it, right? Let them know how far reaching the actions are, and then maybe we can come up with a solution. Because, like I said, you can't draw one line, you don't know where the line is, mm-hmm. you don't know where to place it. But definitely, it helps when payments remain separate sometimes right the communications company handles that social media is different my e-commerce is separate because we know monopolizing an industry has never worked Mm. so yeah I think that's something that we have to understand that monopolizing never works you know it, it only hurts the small players and the customers lose out
0: right yeah that that's an incredibly important point yeah I mean just three years ago uh Facebook was in front of uh the United States Senate, and, and a senator asked them, how do you make money? And then now, you know, what, three, four years later, uh, Facebook is now uh, somewhat of a fintech company as well. So that, that's very, yeah. from, from a legal perspective, it's hard for the law to catch up with that and, and to learn how to, uh, yeah. how to regulate companies that work in so many different spaces and, and make right. money in such a complicated way.
1: Even the simpler thing that happened, I think just a few weeks ago, everyone knows Facebook went down, right? Right. Facebook, Instagram, everything. And people like us, you know, who whose families are away from us, that was the only mode of communication. But Facebook and Instagram both went down. Mm-hmm. And all lines of communication are cut, which is why we shouldn't have one player controlling, you know, major channels in any space. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that you just mentioned that um, a, a solution to this would be, um, or do you do you think that a solution to these problems in the future would be teaching all uh, software engineers or or computer engineers, computer scientists, ethics, or or do you think that's do you think that's practical or 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 plausible?
1: I think it's very very much practical mm-hmm. because like we're seeing the workforce right of these big tech companies. They also, sorry, the general workforce of these big tech companies are people who finish bachelors and masters, right? Who've come out of the education system. So if you can simply add the subject in the education system, that would help, right? It's not that difficult. And big tech companies, you know, they have so much money and resources that they can conduct seminars within their space.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, right now, if I'm an engineer, and if someone sees an ethics seminar, I'll just get bored because <laughs> this is not what I studied. But, you know, we just need to make it a daily way of life for them to make sure that, you know what, ethics is not a boring subject. It's a really important topic. So I think it can definitely be done. And colleges have a role to play in that. Professors, you know, researchers of ethics, they have the biggest role to play in this, like academia. I mean, you know, you're like churning out such brilliant minds. And those brilliant minds can just consider this one more small thing that might help us, you know, make better data scientists and be better engineers.
0: Yeah. And you're an excellent example of that too. What- I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and back to talking about um, your experience with the Responsible Digital Leadership Project, what was your what was your experience working on such a diverse team? Um, and, and diverse meaning uh, culturally and linguistically, yeah. disciplinarily. Uh, what were some of your first Uh, impressions, and and how do you think the diversity contributed to uh, your work?
1: Yeah, so to start off, it was obviously, it was the first time that I was interacting with so many people across Mm -hmm. the globe, and I was so impressed, you know, just to be there. It was quite an exciting time, and everyone was studying something different. I think that's what I love the most. We weren't just from different countries, but there were people who were studying psychology or, you know, neuroscience, and I was in tech and there was someone from finance. So having those different viewpoints really helped. And we had some people who were professors, right? And they bring a different level of experience to the team. I think that was the most interesting part of it. Also, um, you know, there are certain things we know, like for example, India and Kenya are growing economies. So we knew that there were common points. But when we all spoke together, I realized that all of us, even the person sitting in Italy, We all are worried about our parents, about their generation and how they're dealing with technology. So there were all these common points that we realized after talking to each other and we realized that we all just want the same thing, you know, that was quite interesting to see. And just to hear them and what they are learning in their own individual field, that just added to my knowledge a lot. So it was very interesting to work with these people.
0: Have you seen or experienced geographical or cultural differences or do you see how they led to different outlooks on a particular technology or dilemma? Um, um.
1: Yes, sure. So I definitely noticed that people from Europe, also now that they have GDPR, they were a lot more stringent, right? Mm-hmm. They wanted to draw clear boundaries saying, no, we don't want to share. Whereas I know for a fact there are a lot more people in India who would be willing to share, you know? Like for the benefits that they're getting from those apps, they would be willing to share data. But... Yeah, I realize that people from Europe are not willing to share more. Like at least the few people that we spoke to the researchers, you know, they are not very open about it. And uh, there are some new avenues. People are saying things like, maybe in the future, we'll come up with a model that allows us to monetize our own data, mm. right? Yeah. yeah, that is something that I know a lot of people in India would be on board with, right? But maybe someone in UK would not be, and that is just based on our economy, right? If you already have a lot of money, you don't care about it you don't care about you know selling your data you don't want the money yeah. but in growing economies people would want that uh, right yeah. yeah that was different for sure
0: um and was there anything about your your unique um, your unique experience that you thought brought something to the to your team or to the project that um, that yeah that nobody else really could or um, it, were, were there things that were easier to you that might have been yeah. more, uh, less intuitive to others that you noticed? So um,
1: the funny thing is that this project just encompassed all of my experiences <laughs> as a computer engineering graduate, as someone who's worked in finance, as, and as someone who worked in the government. It was literally the three branches of my life and my experience just coming together as one. And that is something that I could clearly see, right? I had worked with a bank. I had worked on large data sets. I know what data was being used. I had worked with rural women. I could see why they needed access to this financial institutions desperately. And I had worked with algorithms in the past, right? And the ways in which data is processed. So I think just all of it together, I was able to comment on things from a more, um, you can say more holistic perspective and not just from one side, right? It wasn't just what I think about ethics. It's about what I think about this chain of events overall, mm-hmm. right? Like, I know for a fact that no engineer tries to make an an, an unethical algorithm. Mm-hmm. People are trying to, you know, drag engineers to court. But you have to know, it's never done with a cruel intention, right? That is something that I could say directly and honestly that, you know what? No one does this on purpose. But it's just the small things which are sometimes not in their control that happen or like with banks I know they're regulated so I know that you know they're doing good work but what we need is just more information as things are processed as the world gets fancier you just need to simplify the information just tell them here's what we're taking from you here's what we will use it for if you don't want it tell us to stop mm. that's it you know simplify to that level
0: Rhea, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day to, to speak with us. Um, you're so insightful and I really hope I get to hear from you more in the future.
1: This was amazing for me too. Thank you so much for having me. And I really hope that all of us can you know, actually meet in person someday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope that, you know, I think like doing this in COVID was a big deal and this project, I don't know how did we reach here. So it's amazing that, you know, all of y'all and Soren and Elise could get us to this point. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you for saying that. I feel the same way too.